For he, that's speaking about God, hath made him, and that's speaking about Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I think we can say that this is a simple text, and yet, for all of its simplicity, it's one of the most profound in its teaching in all of the Bible. Because we have here what is essentially a great exchange. You have our sin, and you have Christ's righteousness. Our sin is reckoned to Christ's account in our justification. Christ's righteousness is reckoned to our account in our justification. So there's this great exchange. And what a great mystery there is here in this. It's the very heart of the Christian gospel. It is a fundamental truth. It is an infinite truth. And in this text, you may identify three Separate parties. Three individuals are spoken of. There's God the Father, referred to as He, who has made Him to be sin for us. And the Him that's referred to is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And then when it speaks of us, for us, When it uses the collective pronoun, we, that we might be made the righteousness of God, that's referring to Christian believers, those who come to trust in Christ, if you like, the people of God. So there are three parties in the text, the Father, the Son, and the Lord's people. As we think of them in turn, and it's interesting, and it is important that we do so, We begin by thinking about God the Father and how that these words relate to Him. And we definitely learn from these wonderful words several important facts, several important truths concerning the person of the Father. And I want us to consider those things tonight and related truths that are connected with it. The first thing that I learn about in relation to the Father is His justice. God is a just God. We learn from the book of Romans that He's a just God and a Savior. He cannot be and will not be a Savior without being a just God. The justice of God is to the fore when it comes to the Gospel. Now notice the text. He, that is God, and it's referring in the the economy of redemption to God the Father, hath made Him, that's Christ, the Son, to be sin for us. So we're introduced here right away to the doctrine of sin. And that brings forth the thought of God's justice. Sin, what is it? Well, it is that wicked thing that made the atonement of Christ necessary. Right here, that evil thing called sin is mentioned in connection with Christ. 
and the atonement that he made. We know those words so very well, don't we? Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We also are familiar, many of us, with those related words in Romans 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that or in that all have sinned. Here's the doctrine of original sin. And when when God is describing sin for us, He just uses the word sin in our text. He hath made Him to be sin for us. When we consider what sin is, there are really two ways in which we can look at it. You can look at it from the point of view of the negative side and, if you like, the positive side. What sin is negatively, it is a coming short. It is a failure to meet God's holy standard. A just standard. Romans 3.23 makes that clear. All have sinned and are constantly coming short of the glory of God. That's what that verse means. So we're falling short of God's standard. We're not meeting God's standard. That's our sin, if you like, in the negative way. But then, as we look at sin as a positive breaking of God's commandment, it's so described in 1 John 3 verse 4. And if you take those two texts together, you have a biblical definition of sin. It's a coming short of the glory of God, but it's also 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 to be found in these words. Whosoever committeth sin, that is somebody who does sin, transgresseth or breaketh also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So what is sin? It's a coming short of God's standard. It's a falling short of that just standard that he has set. But it's also breaking through the barrier that God has set and actually committing a transgression. Committing a sin. It is a breaking, a breach of God's law. You might call it a stepping over the mark, a going beyond the boundary that God has set. God says in His law, thus far and no further, the sinner steps over that that sin. So here we have a picture of mankind. Man is a sinner. He is a rebel. He is a lawbreaker. He has failed to meet God's standard of righteousness on the one hand. That is perfection. He's failed to meet that standard. He has also sinned against God. So he finds himself condemned. He's guilty. And he's now liable to punishment. His sin must be visited with judgment. There is a sentence that God has declared. There is a penalty for the breach of God's law that he has declared that has to be carried out. And this, of course, is a matter of justice. You come to a court of law in our country, you are in the dock, you are charged with a crime. The crime is something that's on the statute book. 
you have broken a particular law. And the judge has to give a judgment on this. Are you guilty? Are you not guilty of the breaking of that law? If you are guilty of the breaking of that law, the judge will have in front of him a series of penalties that he can give. And as it is dependent on various other factors, is it a first offence? Is it a second offence? Is this person someone who's been under probation? And all the rest of it. But based on the proper laws of jurisprudence, he will come in with a verdict. And if, if he is a just judge and you're guilty of the crime, he will announce your punishment. And it will be carried out. And that's just a matter of justice. And what we expect of men who sit in courts in our land, whether it be a local court or a federal court, whatever it may be, even the Supreme Court, we expect them to exercise justice. In fact, those that sit on the Supreme Court are referred to as justices. Should we not expect that from God? Should we not think that God is a God of justice? And certainly as you read about him in the Bible, that's exactly what he is. He's a God of infinite justice. You look at the Old Testament law of God in Deuteronomy, the chapter 32. And there are a number of scriptures that speak to this. I'll just give you a few of them. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, it says of the Lord, He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment. Now notice this. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. Just and right is He. And we learn from other scriptures. Psalm 89, verse 14, for example, about this God, the kind of God that He is. Psalm 89, 14, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. We learn from Exodus chapter 34 that the Lord will not acquit the wicked. The Lord will not let people off with the breaking of his law. Exodus 34 from verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But note this, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and so on. He will by no means clear the guilty. He's not going to wink at sin because he's a God of infinite justice. And this most vital truth is found in the text. He hath made him to be sin for us. There is unswerving justice with God. And yet there are many, including so-called ministers, who deny this truth. And often today people don't want to think about a God who not only will punish sin, but must punish it. He must punish it. Why? Because of his just and righteous character. But you will find in the day in which we live that many have a very light view of sin and transgression. 
And not surprisingly, they also have erroneous views of the character of God. You know, the kind of God that some people worship is a figment of their imagination. Remember some years ago, a report in a newspaper that we received from my wife's home state of Iowa. It reported on a Methodist minister somewhere there in the state of Iowa who had been found guilty, now listen to this, found guilty of attempted rape. His superior in the Methodist church came to his congregation and advocated on behalf of the minister who had been judged in the court. And what he said to the congregation was this, that you need to show mercy to this man, because he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Can you imagine? That's how he dealt with that situation. Nothing about the victim. Nothing about the crime, the sin that had been committed, the abominable wickedness that was perpetrated by this man who claimed to be a minister. Nothing about that. Just You need to forgive him because he that is without sin among you shouldn't be cast in the first stone. I don't know, but I don't think that congregation was full of rapists. And I don't think the people in that congregation took a very high view of what was said that day. Now we know that God is love. The Bible says that. The Bible teaches it. But it doesn't just say God is love. It says God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And it's in the very same epistle that says God is love. God is light. He's a holy and a just God who will not wink at sin. The Bible calls him the judge of all the earth who will do right. When I was in theological hall, we studied in one of our classes the works of W.G.T. Shedd, great theologian. And he gave a description of the justice of God in this way. Listen, justice is that phase of God's holiness which is seen in his treatment of the obedient and disobedient subjects of his government. Justice is that attribute whereby God gives to everyone what is due to him. Justice is that attribute whereby God gives to everyone what is due him. Now this is God's justice in relation to his creatures. But there's a sense in which we can say God's justice also has an absolute quality about it. There is an infinite rectitude in the divine nature in virtue of which God is infinitely righteous in himself. He is innately righteous. He doesn't just, in other words, act righteously. He doesn't just act justly, but he is a just God. That's his nature. That's his character. God does what he does because it is right. And that will help you and it will help me in some of the difficult situations we find ourselves in in life. I must confess there are things that happen even in this world and they happen to godly people and they leave me shaking my head and scratching my head for answers. 
And I don't understand it. But when I read God's precious word, I find that God acts in accordance with his nature, which is absolutely holy. And therefore, as a just God, he does what is right. And one thing that God will always do is he must and he will punish sin. I know what the greatest demonstration of that is? Calvary. Calvary. This is the greatest evidence that God is a just God. I can understand when the Bible tells me that God spared not the old world. Because the people who lived in Noah's day were wicked. They deserved wrath. And that's what they received. God spared not the old world. It's not hard for me to understand that. I find also that the Apostle Peter says, God spared not the angels that sinned. Those fallen angels, those creatures who fell along with Lucifer. And it says that God spared not the angels. And I can understand that. I can also understand what it says in Romans 11 about Israel, who were described as the natural branches that were cut off. And the Bible tells us there that God spared not the natural branches. And I can fully understand that because they had great privileges. And they knew better. And for God not to spare them is infinitely understandable. But there's a verse, Romans 8.32, that I can't understand. And this is what it says. God spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him freely give us all things? You know what that proves to me? That God's justice is unswerving. God is going to visit sin with wrath and judgment even when that sin is borne by His only begotten Son. When our sins were laid upon Jesus at the cross, God looked upon Jesus as He looked upon our sin. And He poured out infinite judgment and wrath upon Him. He is a just God. A just God who demands payment for sin. The penalty has to be exacted. It has to be carried out. And the Lord Jesus was punished for sin upon the cross because God is inflexibly just. See, the gospel message is simply this. Either the sinner himself has to be punished for his sins or else the sinner's substitute. Either the sinner himself will be punished, that's why there's a hell, or the sinner's substitute will be punished. That's why there's glory through Christ. And in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, infinite justice was fully satisfied. Payment for sin was fully made. And so we read those great words in Scripture, a just God and a Savior. A just God and a Savior. So let me emphasize this. This is the first great truth that we learn in the text about God the Father. His infinite, His inflexible justice. In our salvation, our sin is not overlooked. Let's understand this. It's not that God sees you as a sinner. You're guilty of sin. You have these sins laid upon your account. And God just says, you know what, I'll just forget all about that. 
I'll just pass over those sins. I'll forget that it even happened. And we'll just move on from there. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. That is not what God does. God doesn't forget about your sins. God doesn't say, well, I'm going to just ignore your sins. No, your sins have to be laid upon your substitute. Your sins have to be punished. And they're either going to be punished in Christ. Or you'll bear them for all eternity in your own person and be punished eternally for them. This is the truth. Sin is only put away by a sacrifice which satisfies divine justice. The doctrine of satisfaction for sin is really important in the gospel. He hath made him to be sin for us. This tells us about God's unerring, inflexible justice. But there's a second great truth. And that is the sovereignty of God. And that sovereignty is unmistakable. Notice the text. For he hath made him to be sin for who? For us. For us. Now of course Mr. Arminian will say that's everybody that ever lived. Jesus paid the price of the sins for everybody who ever lived or whoever will live. Well if you look at the context... It says there in verse number 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And of course, again, Mr. Arminian, Mr. Semi-Pelagian will say the world means the world. It means every last person in it. Well, I'm afraid that doesn't gel with the rest of Scripture because there are places where the word world doesn't mean the entire world. It means a particular section of the world. Luke chapter 2 speaks of A decree that was given by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. But that didn't include America. America wasn't discovered yet. That didn't include a lot of other parts of our world. When it says all the world, it means all the Roman world. That's where he had jurisdiction. That's why he could put out that decree that all the world should be enrolled in the census because that was all the Roman world. And again, Paul uses that in the same way In Romans chapter 1, when he says of the church there, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Well, he means the whole Roman world. The Roman Empire. There's a place in 2 Peter where it speaks of the world of the ungodly. There's a place in 1 John that says, we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's the whole ungodly world. Because how can you have we who are of God, and then the whole world, including us, dwelling in wickedness. That that would be a nonsense. That's not what the verse teaches. It's talking about the world of the ungodly. Sometimes in the Bible you read the word world, or all the world, and it's referring to the world of the godly, the world of the elect. And so it is here. How do I know that? Because it says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That means not reckoning their sins against their name. Is that true of everybody in the world? Has everybody who has ever lived or whoever will live not had their sins imputed to them? There are people who are in hell tonight because their sins are imputed to them. No, this is talking about the world of the godly. And so when he uses this term, for us, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is a family word. The collective pronoun is a family term. It's just like what it says in Romans. Christ died for us. I know the sentiment behind it, but when someone quotes Christ died for you, that's not strictly what the Bible says. The Bible says Christ died for us. It's a statement of assurance when you say Christ died for me. And so we have here, implicit in our text, God's unmistakable sovereignty. This is one of a a, a number of family texts, as I've referred to them. It is a fact that God gave Christ to be the substitute for his own elect people. They're described in various ways in the New Testament. They're called in Matthew 1.21, his people. His name would be called Jesus For he would save his people from their sins. You come to John chapter 10 verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Yet in the very same chapter he said of some, But ye are not of my sheep, because ye believe not. Again in Ephesians 5.25 we read that Christ loved the church. And gave himself for it. His people whom he foreknew. That's another statement that's used by Paul. See what God does, he does in absolute sovereignty. There's nothing outside of God which compelled or forced him to do anything that he did or does. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Now the reason that many people balk at the great doctrines of election and predestination is that they think they can measure God by their own yardstick. They want to think about a God who acts according to the way that they think that he should. You know the idea, well if I were God I would save everybody. If I were God I would give everybody a chance to be saved. That's the reasoning that many people have. But look at Ephesians 1 verse 11. It speaks of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. There's the basis. Unmistakable sovereignty. And the Bible clearly teaches us this truth. And it's not just true in every area but salvation. You'll hear some preachers talk about God being, oh God's a sovereign God and God will do this and God will do that. And then you start talking about salvation. Oh, but wait a minute, oh, but people need to make a decision and the people's free will. But wait a minute, I thought God was sovereign in everything. He is sovereign in everything. Including salvation as well as all other areas. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can say unto him, what doest thou? None can stay his hand. And we need to be clear in this vital area. When we come to talk about these matters, I think the key to a lot of it is our view of sin. And our view of what sin has actually done to mankind My pastor used to say, to hear some preachers, you would think that when Adam fell, he just tripped up and stubbed his little toe. 
or he knocked himself unconscious for a little while rather than the Bible telling us that he died were dead in sins and in trespasses the sinnership of all men has rendered all men unable to come to God without divine intervention now before we ever consider the atonement offered for God's elect we have to establish two facts about man in his sin first of all why man is a sinner and secondly what man is as a sinner now why is man a sinner why are you a sinner and why am I a sinner why is Joe Bloggs on the street a sinner by our own choice because in Adam we sinned all have sinned and come short of the glory of God so we ask this question is it God's fault that man is lost and undone no it's not God's fault it's man's fault salvation is all of God damnation is all of sin and God is not obligated therefore since it's man's own fault that he's lost God is not obligated to save any man God is under no obligation to save anyone and so if all men went to hell in their sins not a single one of them could argue with that not one of them could say well my Lord that shouldn't happen that's not fair no they couldn't say that because they deserve hell so that's the first thing why is man a sinner by his own choice nobody forced you to become a sinner you were born in sin and you began to sin naturally as soon as you were born the second thing is though what has man become as a sinner what exactly is his condition has he been injured has he hurt himself a little bit is he limping or is he dead spiritually well my Bible teaches me that he's dead spiritually he's lost all ability to choose right and to choose good he's lost that ability Jesus said it you will not come to me that you might have life man cannot and he will not come to God for life and so that brings us and shuts us up inevitably to the truth of God's sovereignty in salvation you look at all mankind in Adam lost under the curse God is not obligated to save a single one of them none of them has any claim whatsoever to his mercy or favor and yet in pure mercy and grace out of that mass of fallen sinful humanity he chooses a people for himself and he gives them in covenant to Christ you read John chapter 17 and that's the doctrine that comes out of that clearly the Lord says it over and over again them which thou hast given me Christ to whom they were given promised in the covenant of grace to redeem them unto himself by his becoming a man and dying in their place and so that same people who are described in Revelation as a multitude that no man can number he promises to bring to the Father by his Spirit working faith and repentance in their hearts by the miracle of regeneration this happens in time so that we who are saved can only marvel at the truth of God's election chosen not for good in me 
Wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Saviour's side, by His Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. We who are saved, and I can only marvel at the truth of God's election and say we love Him because He first loved us. That's the only reason. Paul thought that it was good to thank God for the Thessalonians. He said in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We're bound to thank God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel. See, salvation is all of God. It's all of grace. And as a believer in Christ tonight, I can rejoice in the fact that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And there's no reason for it outside of God's own purpose. We're thinking about the Father and his justice. We're thinking about the Father and his sovereignty. And we have to finish with this. And that's this third great truth that we find in the text. And is the truth of God's grace. We sang about it in the hymn, didn't we? Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. It's unmerited, isn't it? And you see, this divine grace, it can only operate where there is the satisfaction of divine justice. And the text, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, shows us Just what God's grace has done because his justice has been satisfied. What has he done? Well, he made him to be sin for us, and you know sin, that in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace, by its very definition, is the free, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favour of Almighty God to sinners. And Paul himself was able to say, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's grace that has made us what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace taught my soul to pray and made my eyes o'erflow. Tis grace has kept me to this day and will not let me go. It was grace, the hymn writer said, that gave me to the Lamb who all our sorrows took. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It has made us what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we? We're the righteousness of God in Him. My theology lecturer, the Reverend James Beggs, was the first man that I ever heard in prayer, when he would pray with us students, quote regularly the words of that great hymn. And I've learned often to quote it myself in prayer. No works of merit now I plead. But Jesus, take for all my need. 
No righteousness in me is found except upon redemption ground. It's not of works. It's not of works. Salvation is that we know which God freely bestows upon sinners, not for anything in them. But because in Christ they are made, they are viewed as righteous. The hymn writer, the other hymn writer put it very well, Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace has bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded, pride I abase, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. That's all you are and that's all I am. God's free grace is the sinner's only hope for heaven. It was one of the Puritans who once testified that he would gather up all his good works and he would gather up all his evil works in a great bundle. And he said, I will just cast them overboard and I will float to heaven on the plank of free grace. This is our only hope of heaven. Our God is a just God. But oh how glad I am that he is a gracious God. He's described by Peter as the God of all grace. And yes, grace is the free, unmerited, undeserved favour of God. But it's more than that. It's undeserved favour bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God see you think about what we do deserve if the Lord had been given you and me our just desserts we would already be in hell already but he has laid our sins on Jesus the spotless lamb of God who bears them all and frees us from the accursed load Think of that great aggregate of sin. Every sin of every believer in history. Laid upon Jesus. He bore the responsibility for those sins and he bore the punishment that was to be visited upon those sins. Hugh Martin, who was a great Scottish preacher, he wrote a classic work on the atonement, actually paraphrased this text in 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the following way. This is how he wrote it. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we who knew no righteousness might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that really puts it very well. That's implicit in the text. We who knew no righteousness God has made over to us in our justification the full, perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus so that we appear before God in pristine holiness. We're viewed by God in Christ as perfect. Now that's grace. That's grace. And as we started out tonight's service, so we finish with that great chorus. Oh, to grace how great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. When we think about this subject of the grace of God, doesn't it make us love the Lord more than we ever loved Him before? We get a hold of this truth. 
and the implications of these words. And of course there's a depth that we can never really fathom. We'll perhaps come to that in the next message. But that statement right there, he hath made him to be sin for us. I, I find that to be a really mysterious statement. How God could view his own son as that filthy, vile and loathsome thing that we call sin. And punish him on our account because of that sin. How gracious is our God. And the Lord help us to appreciate more and more as the days go on the grace of our God in salvation. May we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength.